Welcome to all of you that are hungry for reality, for the truth which can only satisfy the very core of your being, that are open to hearing this message. Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that are new, I just briefly want to explain a few things first. I'm about to share a message which I do not spend much time preparing. I am seeking to speak this message out of the Spirit of God so that the words that come out of me are coming through the Holy Spirit of God. The Apostle Peter commanded the early church in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So we are to seek to speak in ministry to all those that God uses us to minister to as God speaking through us. And that, and this is really to be done out of a pure spirit. And that is what I will seek to do in this message. Part of what's involved in me seeking to do this is seeking to find the chapter out of all the chapters in the Bible that God wants me to share with you. I practice the casting of lots before God where there's an equal chance for any chapter in the Bible to come forth. I'm not here to spend any amount of time explaining that, but you can find that this was practiced by the Church of Israel before the time of Christ from the very beginning by the early church and throughout church history by powerful movements such as the Moravian uh, movement of revival. In Proverbs 16, the last verse, it says, the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So all I do is meditate on a chapter for a half an hour and in that time also gather together uh, or write the notes that I have received through my meditation. Today is a very special day. It is September the 24th on Wednesday of the year 2014. It is the Feast of Trumpets that the Jewish people celebrate, which is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23, for example, verse 23 to 25. It is mentioned in other places of Scripture as well. And there we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now the next verse reveals after this celebration of the blowing of trumpets, known as the Feast of Trumpets, the next feast that is after that, or the next gathering together unto the Lord. And so in verse 26, we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And it goes on to say there that those that did not mourn before God and afflict their souls on this day known as the day of atonement, that Yom Kippur would be excommunicated from the nation of Israel. Now, that isn't the passage that I received through the casting of lots today, but it does have a strong relation to what I received through the casting of lots today, which will come forth later on in the message. 
Today I received Zechariah 13. I will first read this chapter of Zechariah 13. And this particular book, Zechariah, is also a very prophetic book, and so is this chapter, particularly about the last days, the very last days. Beginning in verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried and they shall call on my name and I will hear them, and I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. In this passage of Scripture, it is indeed a prophecy of the last days, but for many that call themselves believers and Christians, this passage seems somewhat mysterious because it has descriptions in it that do not seem to fit in to what it would be like in one's concept of the last days. First, I want to point out what period of time this is speaking about in the last days, which is clearly brought out from the context of the chapter before Zechariah 13, and also from verse 1. It says, In that day shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. This fountain, the word fountain in the Hebrew, has clear understanding of a source such as of water, something that naturally flows, that as a result can have a cleansing effect. A source is obviously a fountain. A fountain that springs forth from the earth is a source like an Atasian well. And with that water, there is vibrance and health brought into people's lives. There's also cleanliness so that they are kept from being uncomfortable and from disease. Now, this fountain is described clearly as well in Zechariah chapter 12, particularly in verse 10. 
we have an understanding that this source cleanses from sin, as it clearly states here, and from uncleanness. Sin has the understanding of choices of disobedience and rebellion against God that result in the consequences of being cut off from the Spirit of God, from the presence of God. And uncleanness has the understanding of a state of being that has a quality that is impure, a quality that is corrupt, that is destructive, that is contaminating of those about it. Indeed, when one is cut off from the presence of God, this is the case. Now, before I get into maybe explaining that, I want to point out the verse I mentioned in Zechariah 12, 10. That's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I believe I did paste it here, but that's okay. I can go to it very quickly, 12.10. And we read here, and the description in Zechariah 12 is the description of the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom in Israel and how that will unfold. And we see very clearly that the context of this unfolding is a context where the nations are surrounding Israel to the point that their military might is broken. And it describes in this chapter that particular situation. I will not, for example, uh, It's probably not worth me pointing out all the details here, but it basically mentions that two-thirds of the city will be led into captivity. That's the city of Jerusalem. And one-third will be spared. And in this context, when Israel's military might is broken, they are cornered to a place of desperation where they cry out with all the inner depths of their being for God's deliverance and mercy, knowing they have no chance in the natural of survival. And so the description is, is brought forth that the Lord returns and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and in it describes the Mount of Olives splitting in half and so on. But I will just read verse 10 here, which is the main verse we want to focus on. And it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me. That's God speaking. He says, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. and They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadadimeron, Hadadrimon, Hadadrimon, in the valley of Megadon. There's this great mourning that takes place. This is not a mourning of loss. This is a mourning over sin and their re recognizing and loathing their blindness of heart towards acknowledging who their Messiah was and is. It says, they shall look upon me. And it's very clear in this chapter that the one that is speaking 
is God. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now Christ spoke of Mary when he was crucified on the cross. And he said to Mary before he was crucified that a sword will pierce through your own heart. And the very core motives of your soul will be revealed. That's basically what he said. I, I am not memorizing it literally word for word, but it's very approximate to what Christ said. And then when Mary saw her own son that she begat on the natural and the cross, indeed, there it pierced the very depths of her heart. And she mourned. And remember, it was also her own son in the natural but she knew that the son that she had was no ordinary son. For the angel appeared to her and told her who this son was that she had. So there was both the mourning of the natural loss, but much more the mourning of recognition that he was suffering as the very Messiah for the sins of Israel. And it was piercing to the depths of one's heart. That is the context that I want to bring out for Zechariah 13. And I want to give an understanding of the Feast of Trumpets, which is not the Feast of the Day of Atonement that I described here in Leviticus chapter 23 in regards to the Feast of Trumpets, which is this very day that I am speaking on, of September the 24th on Wednesday of 2014. But there are various verses in the scripture that describe the trumpet. For example, in the book of Revelations. It doesn't hurt for me to turn to the book of Revelations quickly and just point out a description of the trumpet in Revelations. And it says here in Revelations chapter 1, Speaking of John, it describes the voice as the sound of a trumpet. I'm just scanning right now to find that verse. And it says this in verse 10 of Revelations 1. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. The voice of God is very piercing, like unto a trumpet. And when his voice speaks, it pierces through the physical dimension into the dimension that our soul exists in and our spirit. It pierces through the very core of one's inner being. We have the description of the voice of God on Mount Sinai as a loud piercing trumpet and the awe of it was too much for the children of Israel to stand for it felt like in hearing this voice like they were literally physically dying because it was echoing with a reverberation into the very depths of their being. Today is the celebration of the Feast of Trumpets by the nation of Israel. And the symbol of the trumpet has within it the symbol of the carrying forth of the very voice of God that echoes to the very core of one's being with reality, that dissipates delusion and all those things that are cropped within the being of man. The reason that it is hard to take the receptivity to such a voice is because of the degree of corruption that is within one's soul. The word of God is described as like a sharp two-edged sword in Hebrews 4.12, where it says this, that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. Piercing, and it doesn't hurt also for me to turn to Hebrews 4.12 to that passage and read it, even though I can quote it pretty well word for word. 
But let's just read Hebrews 4.12. Okay, I may have exactly, not exactly the right place for this. I thought it was Hebrews 4.12, so I will just merely quote what I know by memory as, as well. It says that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul. Oh, no wonder I don't have it. I'm in chapter 5. Okay, 4.12. Here's the exact verse. For the word of God is quick. That means living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow in our physical body, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I want to give a brief understanding of why the word that comes forth from the Spirit of God is described to be like a two-edged sword. In fact, it describes this two-edged sword in other places. Let's turn, for example, to Ephesians chapter 6, where also it describes this word of God. When it tells us to put on the word of God, and it says this here, going down into verse 17 of chapter 6, and take the helmet of salvation and what? the sword of the Spirit. So the sword represents the Spirit of God coming forth as a shaft of light that is very piercing and has this phenomena of a two-edged aspect to it. It is the sword of the Spirit of God that comes forth and destroys the Antichrist system and his army in the last day. And this is described in Revelations 19. So we'll now turn to Revelations 19, where there is this description. In Revelations 19, towards the very end of the chapter, it says this. It describes the Antichrist Maybe I'll start at verse 20 so it gives a better context. And it says the following. Well, I'll go up to actually verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And here's the verse. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So I have given various descriptions that make it clear that the understanding of the blowing of the trumpet has within it the understanding of the very Spirit of God coming forth as a creative voice to have tremendous effect upon those that are receptive or rebellious against it. The ones that are rebellious are totally destroyed by it as described in what I just read. Now we will go back to our theme chapter, which is Zechariah 13. And I was describing the effect that Mary experienced when she saw the Messiah, the very full expression of God into the time and space realm to govern within this realm, suffering more than the mere creature, more than mere mortal man, and humbled more than the mere creature, more than mere mortal man, so that we could repent and be reconciled to God and have our sins cleansed. 
and the uncleanness removed that is within us that has such an innate tendency towards independence from God by buying into the lying vanities of this world that the enemy uses to manipulate people's lives to destruction. What is the two-edged aspect of the being of God? It is revealed on his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And there's two things revealed on the cross. Even the symbol of the cross itself is a picture of those two aspects of the being of God who is ultimate, perfect love. The first aspect of this love of God I will describe for those that are new and have never heard the good news. The being of God is love, but what is love? Love is a quality that is totally free and volitional. It's not like a robot where it's receiving input from an outside source. It is totally self-originating and free, but in God, those choices are always choices unto the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment that would be less than unto the highest lasting good. Such choices are without any principle of destructibility or corruption in them. This kind of love has total integrity against any choice that would be less. Total, pure integrity. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to such love. This is known as the defensive aspect of the being of God's love, which is his holiness. Holiness is very clearly described in the Hebrew as a purity. And God's love is totally pure. It is a blazing fire of judgment. And if it was not, he would be condoning what is destructive and be partaker thereof and no longer would be able to contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it or without it being dissipated. Yes, God's love must always judge what is contrary to love in the slightest. This represents a foundation. The nag in for, for sake of illustration, it represents the negative in nature. You have negatives and positives. You could call this the ultimate negative of the universe, so to speak. It's not a very good way of saying it, but it, it really drives home the understanding. Really, it's an ultimate positive because only such a quality can contain unlimited life and unlimited power that can be contained in such a way that it can ever be expressed in a creativity that is ever enlarging in greater and greater realms of fulfillment and purpose and meaning. This is the holiness of God. It is the foundation, just as the negative symbol represents a horizontal line which represents can represent foundation. Without that quality, the universe would not exist. It would self-destruct. Now they know about the God particle that was discovered in July of 2012. That's a big topic to go into. Look it up on the internet. The Large Hadron Collider under Geneva, Switzerland, a 10 to $16 billion project built over 16 years whose main purpose was to discover the God particle, which they indeed discovered. That is what is behind holding all the structures of the atomic, of the atom, 
they've discovered what is holding all the structures of the atom. They know the atom is just diff different structures of energy and clusters of energy, but they didn't understand what was holding all of these things together in definite order and so on. Now they know. Of course, the Word of God says that by God all things consist because he created all things and his presence is attached to all things in ultimate intelligence. And you can watch a physicist on my website who's not even a believer follower of Christ and he is convinced and he's more of an expert as a physicist than most because of his expertise also in engineering. And he makes it clear that his conclusion is that throughout the universe, even where there is nothing that would seem like total emptiness, there is what is like the neurons in the brain, which is intelligence attached to every particle of existence. You can hear him talk. He's taken all the evidence and put it together in a way that is very, very scientific and logical and gives an answer to the contradictions that have been in physics. His name is Ron Pearson, I believe, yes. Okay. I am talking here about the two aspects of the being of God which consist of this sharp two-edged sword of light, which is his spirit that comes out from God with creative activity and with capability of judgment upon all that would be in rebellion against him. As described in the destruction of the Antichrist and the armies of the earth that actually come in direct defiance against God in the last days. So the first aspect is the holiness of God, the integrity of God's love. And it is out of that that can issue forth creativity. And that creativity is ultimately manifested in ultimate purpose and meaning. And also, because of that foundation, that creativity has no corruption in it. And because it has no corruption in it, it can ever enlarge and ever expand in greater realms of fulfillment and creation. It is ultimately manifested in the fact that because of the purity of God's love, there is also from that foundation the moral capacity within God to have such love that he, with that holiness that requires judgment, can still provide destiny and purpose to his creation. And if God could not provide destiny and purpose to a creation that has their own free will, for if they didn't have free will, they would not have the capacity to love and would be merely robots, with their own free will, has the capacity for hell because of that within their heart by choices against God who is love. You create beings with their own free will. They are the source of their own action. They are their own creators of their own destiny. Therefore, they are responsible for their choices. Therefore, God cannot be blamed for evil. It is our choices. God cannot be blamed for creating the devil. It was Satan, Lucifer himself, that made those choices. He was the source of his own action. In this case, out of that creativity... We see it ultimately manifested in a moral capacity that is so great that God himself can become a perfect, that there is within God the moral capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, which he did in Jesus Christ and suffered more than the mere creature and humbled himself more than you so that you could have the privilege to choose to receive God's mercy. This is the other aspect of the being of God. It is the first 
the holiness of God, out of which issues the manifestation of God's mercy with the power to assure forgiveness to those who are tempted and fall in rebellion against God to assure forgiveness to all those that repent and receive his atoning work on the cross. Through Jesus Christ. I don't have time to explain many things here on that. I am just trying to do the least here to build a foundation for those that are new that have never heard of this truth. And so these are the two aspects of the being of God. The holiness of God and the manifestation of creativity that is ultimately manifested in the love that was revealed on the cross to show such incredible mercy and forgiveness. Yes, from the time of Adam and Eve, even before Christ came, they clearly recognized these two aspects of the being of God. And no doubt many of them recognized that since they recognized that the animal could only cleanse the physical realm that would allow God's presence to dwell with their soul and spirit so that they could know and have fellowship with God. They recognized, though, that forgiveness was only in God and that since God required judgment on sin and that an animal could not represent them as a perfect atoning sacrifice because an animal did not have a soul and spirit like man, they recognized that therefore it must be that within God himself there is such an ultimate moral capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. For within God alone is there the power for forgiveness, and that is why. There are verses that say, Shall I give my body for the sin of my soul, or my children for the sin of my soul? And it clearly emphasizes no. It doesn't lie within man. It only lies within God to provide for himself a perfect atoning sacrifice for his creation. And of course, in the time of Christ, there is a strong teaching on the fact that there must be a suffering Messiah as well as a reigning Messiah. They didn't realize he was one and the same. And many were looking for the Messiah at that time. And indeed he came. I'm not going to be sidetracked. But when there is a genuine choice in people to let go of the things that are not reality, that do not satisfy, for our inner being was not created to find satisfaction in any of the temporal things in this world. The state of our being, as I described earlier, is a state that is unclean. It is like a black hole in outer space that is always pulling things in around it in a destructive way because the choices that we make are always not onto the, are not onto the highest lasting good. They are destructive choices, like a hell in our heart that causes a hell around us. Because we are trying to fill a void, like a black hole in outer space that can never be filled, except by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Or the dwelling with, before Christ came. I'm not here to get into all the teaching, but it was very clear that people recognized these two things, the holiness of God and the mercy of God. And in recognizing the mercy of God, they recognize the love of God to them personally. But it's not merely an intellectual acknowledgement. It's a deep turning of the heart. The choice to genuinely fear God is a choice to recognize God for who he really is that he is ultimately trustworthy because he is so pure in his love that he requires judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. It is a choice that must also recognize the great love of God that he could assure forgiveness and destiny to his creation. And maybe in many cases before they even intellectually came to the conclusion that God must have such a high moral capacity that he could become a perfect atoning sacrifice, for he is the source of forgiveness. 
I shared all that for those of you that are new. And to point out the two aspects of the being of God, this ultimate negative, as it were, out of which issues the ultimate positive, which is represented in the cross. Do you know that in the Hebrew language, the symbol language, which is the more ancient letters of the Hebrew going back to 2000 BC and up to around 1500 BC, and of course even earlier, there's a letter, which is the letter Tav, I believe. It is the picture exactly of what the cross looks like. And what that letter means is a sign, a symbol. And indeed the cross has become a sign and a symbol. And it is the two-edged sword of recognizing God in that way that brings a piercing into the depths of our heart. The genuine fear of God is a deep turning from the heart. As Christ described it, he described a publican, which was a tax collector working for the Romans against the Jewish state that the Jews abhorred. And yet he said this to the Jews. There was a publican and he bent his face into the earth and he smote his breast and cried with a loud voice and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he repeated it over and over. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said that man went to his place justified. But the Pharisees that prayed prayers and wanted to be seen by people, they were thanking God for how they fast and give thighs and are not like other people. Didn't even know God. Never came to a point where their heart was circumcised by the sword of God's being of love in these two aspects. And in this chapter of Zechariah here, we have a description of the last days of this fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness, which is described in Zechariah 12.10 as the fact that they shall look on him, on, on me, pardon me, whom they have pierced, which is God speaking. And then we have more of a description here in Zechariah. And I did go back to March 22nd of 2011, which was the last time I had this pastor, this chapter. And I wrote a brief commentary on this chapter, and I will read that right now to give you a general understanding of this chapter. And I, I say this as a summation of this chapter. Those that are self-righteous and love glory from people and are very religious with restrictive or ritualistic beliefs or liberal or immoral beliefs, they manifest idols in their heart due to the worship of self and self-glorifying righteousness. In the last days, there will be many such that will love to prophesy and appear as John the Baptist in order to draw attention to themselves. When the Lord returns to set up his kingdom on earth, there will be such a hate for the idolatry of self-righteousness and religiousness that parents will, as it were, even physically kill their own children with the sword of truth in order to judge their children that would prophesy out of such idolatry of self-righteousness. Israel will be cleansed by the fountain of God's cleansing blood in Christ and his Holy Spirit of truth or the word of God. They will not want to be prophets, but to be nobodies, and in coming to this place, they will discover their identity with the Messiah whose hands were wounded on the cross for them. It will take a severe judgment to purge them of this religiousness where only one third of them will survive, but these will come to know God in total intimacy. Now that's not what I wrote today. That was what happened in March 22nd of 2011. I thought I would just point that out here. I'm going to go through these verses and briefly mention them now with an understanding that will come with them. And so it describes that at that time, it says in verse 2, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. 
No doubt because this chapter was written at the time when Israel had come back from their captivity is speaking of also to that time, but is also speaking of the last days, that there will be those that will want to be looked up to as prophets. And there are many today, even in the charismatic movement, that want to be looked up to as prophets. There are genuine prophets, and I'm not here to judge in that area right now. But the prophets that condone an image of God that emphasizes the grace of God without the integrity of God's love that requires judgment and purity and holiness are idolatrous in their preaching, in their teaching, and in their prophecies are leading people astray to condone those things that God hates. There is already false unity forming because of this false teaching being at the root, which often leads in to compromise with other religions and false unity, even the belief in universalism that the devil and all people will eventually be saved. But that violates the integrity of God's love. And so God is saying here, and he's warning against those that like to prophesy. And there are a lot of people who like to give words of knowledge. And that's good. It's good that we should seek to edify one another. And that should be encouraged. But it should be encouraged in context with purity. Not doing it presumptuously. Knowing that it is God that is clearly revealing those things. It should be done with humility. Where there's presumption, there is often pride. And pride has its root in a distorted image of God that is either a God who does not have integrity in his love, who is not holy, who I've heard teaching that God is not a God of judgment among charismatics. Not the most of them are not that way, but there's always these things that happen where there's offshoots. In everything, that's the case. And I've also seen things that go the other way where there's an emphasis on holiness without grace, where there's all kinds of control and self-initiated organizing of people into a hierarchy that is controlling. I'm not going to get into all of that. These errors have been from the very beginning in Cain. And I don't have time to go into describing Cain, who was offended at the consequences of the curse and therefore was began to perceive God as an enigma, someone he couldn't understand and as demanding and lost sight of the goodness of God that is behind his holiness, lost sight of the need for God's mercy. And out of that issued all kinds of beliefs that were eventually led into, into polytheism and many gods. For if one God can be demanding like this, maybe there are other gods in the universe and so on. I'm not going to get into that for a time. But from the time of Cain, there's been these two sides that are rebellion against this double-edged sword or this, these two aspects of the being of God. Either rebellion with a distortion about God's holiness or rebellion with a distortion about God's mercy. Where mercy becomes emphasized to the neglect of recognizing God's requirement of judgment his holiness, or where holiness is emphasized to the neglect of mercy. It was Marson that developed that cult and tried to describe that the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. And today we have people that are doing that. 
And out of these movements issue false prophets because they have idols in their heart and are prophesying out of an uncleanness. And it seems that in the last days this will even prevail more. But those that have come as described in Zechariah 12.10 to reciprocate God's mercy revealed in the Messiah whose hands were pierced for them on the cross, God their Savior and Christ. They will come into such a conformity to the being of God that they will love what God loves and hate what God hates to the degree that, as it were, they would put a sword through their own children that would dare to prophesy falsely, claiming to represent the name of the one true God. It is evident that there is a spiritualization happening in these two verses, so I don't believe it is literal, but it is as if they would put a sword through their own children that would do that. By speaking the truth to them that would put to death the deception of their idolatry, by allowing the Spirit of God in them to come out as a sharp sword and to put to death the deception of their idolatry. Because of conformity to the holiness of God and to the mercy of God, which is the love of God. And so we read in this passage of Scripture that there will be that purity when they look on him whom they have pierced and mourn like that publican that beat his breast and are born again of the Spirit as a result because of a true circumcision in the heart that brings a genuine belief from the heart. And the word belief, by the way, in the New Testament is pistis, which means moral persuasion. There will be such a deep conversion that births a moral persuasion to the point of executing judgment on the slightest that is contrary to the love of God, to the reality of who God is. It's interesting because it describes it and it says it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision which he had prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. There's total humility. People that have truly been brought forth anew of the Spirit do not have a motive to seek the glory of man or glory or anything of this life. The only thing they want is to love God and to please him and to seek his glory. They delight to be hidden and not seen of men. True prophets do not want to be known. They want to be hidden. The word of God says that ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. And when there's a true identity with the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Indeed, we are in a place where we only want to be hid in God, for we have died to any self-seeking motives because we've seen how great the mercy of God and the love of God is to us that he could forgive us for our rebellion against him who, as it were, crucified him on the cross with those that mocked him. And so it is interesting that the next verse says in verse 6, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is speaking of the Messiah, who was wounded for our transgressions, but they are coming into such an identity with their Messiah through the revelation that he is indeed their Messiah that I described in Zechariah 12.10. That they are mourning, that that sword, that receptivity to the being of God as a sharp to as a sword has been allowed to enter their heart and to pierce the very motives of their being and to bring them to a place 
where all the dross of uncleanness has been burnt up that would have those impure motives. Their identity is only in Christ. There's a song I love to sing, and it goes like this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave his life for me. Yes. That's what is being described here. That the conversion of these people has brought them to a place where there's such a conformity to the being of God that there isn't the uncleanness left that would seek anything but identity in the crucifixion and resurrection of God himself for them who tasted death for them and conquered death that they might know intimacy and fellowship with him. And we have the last section of this chapter that describes also the prophecy, going back to the prophecy that was fulfilled when the disciples forsook the Messiah when he was taken to be crucified, which we are all familiar with the story. And that was quoted by the disciples. They recognized this verse soon after they had fulfilled it. And so it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And so it was that the, that the disciples forsook the Messiah, for they were disillusioned because they thought he was come to bring a military deliverance to them, didn't and ignored even the teachings that they were discussing that talked of a suffering Messiah that must first come. Well, they didn't believe necessarily that he would first come, but they believed there was a suffering Messiah and another Messiah that would be a conquering Messiah. And so likewise, it is true that the Jewish people are still looking for the Messiah. And in their hopelessness, they will be cornered to recognize their need of God, as described in the previous chapter, where the Lord comes and sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives with thousands and thousands of his saints, and they look on him, God, whom they have pierced and mourned for him. Born for him from the depths of their being where they recognize the love of God for them. They will receive his mercy. And so now we have a description in verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the lands, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. This is also described in chapter 12 that nations surround Israel, their military might is broken. Two-thirds of the city is taken, but a third shall be left therein. And the Lord is going to supernaturally pr protect that remnant. And it says, I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call on my name. And I will hear them, and I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. It takes great tribulation and testing to sometimes shake all the things in our lives that are deceptions of uncleanness and misplaced loyalties to bring us to the place where our identity is only in our relationship with our Messiah, our Creator, our God, to whom alone belongs the glory. 
It's no creature that died on the cross or we would be giving glory to a creature. No, it is God himself that alone receives the glory, for he alone is the Savior of all mankind that call upon him and receive his atoning work on the cross for them, his blood that was shed to cleanse them and make their soul as white as snow to forgive them of all their sins and cause this Holy Spirit to indwell them in a deep communion of intimacy and fellowship. Christ said, whoever believes with their life in me out of their innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. His side was pierced with a spear and out of it flowed blood and water. But now he asks for that smitten rock that followed them in the desert, out of which issued water for them to drink of the rock that was smitten, which is the very rock of reality, of the very foundation of the universe, from which bursts forth life eternal. Will you drink of this living water by choosing to receive your Messiah? by choosing to believe in the one true God who has that only ultimate quality of love that is capable of containing and being the source of unlimited life and power and thus of ultimate goodness that is ever expanding and ever enlarging in creativity for those that will be inheritors of it in heaven forever to reign as a corporate bride with the bridegroom, the Almighty's one true God, Elohim. May God bless all of you that have heard this word. And may you be mindful to be those that are reciprocals of that two-edged sword of the being of God till it does that work within your soul that causes a sword to come out of your mouth that can also bring life to others and break the darkness God bless you. God is calling his people to come together and to be his bride, to come into unity, to tear down the divisions, to tear down the control that stops the members of the body from sharing in the meetings. Come into a place where we're only conscious of one thing, and that is being gathered around the Messiah in our assemblies. And the way to do that is to forget about starting church as usual. Get leadership, get on your faces before God, on your knees, on your faces. Congregation, get on your knees and on your faces and cry out in utter awe of who God is until you're conscious that he is the one in your midst and then his presence will come down and will begin to bring a unity between you with him and with each other that will allow the fullness of his indwelling glory to come upon the earth and conquer your community and conquer your city and conquer your nation before the night comes when no man can work. May God bless all of you that have heard this message and may you take it to heart. May you meditate upon what has been shared in this time of the feast of trumpets that the trumpet would awaken you from your sleep to cast off the shells that have limited god in your life personally and corporately repent of control repent of denominationalism and begin to take the steps to conquer it and facilitate the lord coming in your midst so that he can pour more abundant honor on the part that lacks, so that there will be no schism in the body because the spirit of pride that is behind control, the spirit of denominationalism that is behind control is broken because there's no desire for self-glory. There's no uncleanness anymore because there's a reception to that fountain that cleanses from uncleanness of such things. Turn to him circumcise your hearts and out of prayer make the assembly of your meeting a house of prayer a house of worship fear god repent of not fearing god turn to him with all your heart 
And then out of that will come forth a crescendo of worship and liberty and creative expression with new songs and prophetic songs and prophetic words and words of wisdom that comes out of a pure heart that causes the valleys to rise, those that are dejected, that causes the mountains to be brought down, those that are looked up to too highly and are proud that makes the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth, so that the glory of God is revealed in your midst. Give him no rest until he makes Jerusalem a torch that burns in your community, in your city, in your nation. Give him no rest until he comes down and brings the new Jerusalem into Israel and reigns upon the earth for all things shall be shakable that can be shaken, that what is unshakable might remain, which is the kingdom of God, that has no corruption or destructibility in it. Thank you for listening to this message. God bless you all.